be reading Jeremiah 18, 1 through 6. The words which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hands of the potter, so he made it again another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hands, so are you in mine hand, O house of Israel. Over time, as we read through the Scripture, God has used a myriad of illustrations to describe the relationship that He has with His people. He's used different things. He's often used uh, the image of the shepherd and the sheep. He's talked about the husband and the wife relationship. He has described His relationship as that of a father to His children. In all of those examples teach certain truths and aspects about God. Of course, we are like sheep from whom we uh, receive protection and provision from the shepherd. We are unconditionally loved by God as a husband ought to love his wife. We're constantly under the loving care that a father would extend to his children. But there is another aspect of God's uh, trait, his characteristics, and his love that I think that we ought to understand. There's another relationship example <clears throat> that has been given to us, and I think Jeremiah 18, verses 1 through 6, is the example of that. The Christ did not save us simply so we could go to heaven and avoid hell. He saved us so we could be productive and useful in the kingdom. I think we see that in the, uh, talking about the potter and the clay. He saved, uh, all of us so that we could be profitable. And when we look in Jeremiah 18, we see that the potter is trying to create something where he can, uh, uh, sell it so it can be profitable to him. To be faithful servants, I think we have to understand though that we do rely upon the power of God. That doesn't mean that we aren't to do everything within our power to be obedient to God because that's exactly what He demands from us. But when Jesus made the statement found in John fifteen five, He says, I am the way and ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. <clears throat> now I think it's very important to understand here that Jesus was talking to individual disciples. He wasn't talking to groups of people. He was talking to the individual disciples. And each of us, we are the branches. He's the vine. We trace our strength and our abilities back to the vine. And without Him, 
we can do nothing. And so knowing this illustration, God chose to describe the relationship in this aspect that we have with Him as the potter and the clay. Now in that example, we see that God expects some things, right? And exactly uh, what He had in mind as He used this perfect example of our relationship with Him. The title of the sermon this morning is Learning from the Potter. Learning from the Potter. And I want us to start first with His mission. That's our first point. I want us to notice first within this mission what the Potter's intention is. He has a sole purpose. He is singularly minded and He desires to take the clay and to create vessels that He can use. Right? The intention is to produce vessels which He can use, which other people can use, and vessels which are profitable. Right? Why could God use that illustration to demonstrate His relationship with His people and His followers? Because that's His intention when it comes to Christianity today, right? God looks across time. That was His intention under the patriarchal law, that His followers were profitable vessels. He looks across time, and during the law of Moses period, He wanted His followers, the Jews, to be profitable vessels. Across time, as He looked into the Christian age, He wants Christians to be profitable vessels. It's not good enough to have obeyed the gospel and then simply sit down. That's not what He expects. And so what God is telling us as we read through this passage is that He, in reality, is an expert in taking worthless clay and transforming it into a vessel of honor and glory. That's the example. That's the illustration, isn't it? Notice what Paul told those in Corinth. And he was talking about the way that the world viewed the apostles and those faithful Christians. 1 Corinthians 4.13, he said, uh, Being defamed, they were defamed. They were spoken evil of everywhere. We entreat, we are made as the filth of the world and are the off-scouring of all things unto this day. Now that word off-scouring, that's what we want to notice. What does that mean? <clears throat> Have you ever washed a dish and you first raked it off? Have you ever been camping and you used the, the iron pots or the iron skillets on the campfire and, and you had to scrape off the inside of it because a, a, a campfire can get very hot and things will quickly be burned to the iron? That's off-scouring. That's what the off-scouring is. The off-scouring is that which is worthless and useless. We don't want that. We certainly don't want to eat it. But the world was looking at Paul, the apostles, and Christians and saying, you're worthless. But God took that which the world views as worthless and made something out of it. And so that's the whole point, right? A Christian must be profitable in the kingdom, if he's going to please God. Going from something that is useless, because that's what the non-Christian is, as far as God's uh, uh, plan in this world is, we have to be a part of his family before we can be useful to God. And then, he transforms us into something that's very useful. And that's the whole idea 
about the clay. So we see what the intention of the mission is. Now I want us to notice the instruments that the potter uses. He must first have a shovel. Now what does he do with the shovel? He goes out into the world and he digs into the earth and he removes from the ground clay. Is that clay useful to him at this point? Absolutely not. He can't do a thing with that clay as far as making a, uh, a vessel of some kind. And that reminds us that the potter uses materials at first glance that leave a lot to be desired, right? The, the material that the potter begins with is very lacking, but he transforms that material. That's his whole point, right? The clay is in the ground. It has to be dug up. It has to be taken to the potter's home, and it has to be allowed to dry for several weeks. Now, when we think about clay or uh, creating something with clay, and it's been my experience at my house, and, and Taylor creates, uh, our oldest daughter creates a lot of things out of clay. I've never seen her go dig clay up. You know why? Someone already did that. Someone already dug the clay. Someone let it already let it air dry for several weeks. And then after that, this dried clay is put into a wooden trough at this time, and it's covered with water. When those lumps have softened, they're stirred into the water until they have disintegrated, and at that point they have turned into this thin, slimy mud, also known as slip. It turns into the slip. Now following this slipping process, it is drawn off into settling tanks, leaving behind all the stones, all the lumps, that should not have been or cannot be in the clay. Just think about it. If you make a, a, a cup or a plate or a bowl out of clay and it has some kind of foreign object in it, that's a weak spot. Not going to work. Not going to work, right? And so when the clay is settled, the water is drawn off, leaving behind this plastic-like consistency and material. And then it is worked with feet. They get into the tub and they begin to step into the uh, the clay and they begin to work it up, work it up. I often think of, as I was studying this, the the way they would crush grapes. They would walk on the grapes and it would uh, the juice would flow from them. But finally, the clay is prepared and packed away. Do you know for another six months before it can be properly used? And during that time, the quality, particularly this uh, plasticity, gets greater and greater. And then when that potter brings out that clay, then he can turn it into something useful. See, he started with something that was not useful at all. He dug it up out of the ground. It had all kinds of foreign objects in it. It wasn't uh, suitable to make anything out of. And then he went through this long process, months after months of working this clay. And so, in other words, the clay dug from the ground by the potter's shovel, it's useless at that point. But it has to be transformed into a usable state. And the process takes dedication, it takes work, it takes energy, and it takes time. On whose part? The potter's part. Okay, we need to keep that in mind. 
The sinful of the world are not yet profitable to God. Does that mean they can't be? No, absolutely they can be. But they have to be transformed, right? And of course, that's what God did. God spent the time. He spent the effort. He spent the dedication. And we see that in His sending His only begotten Son, John 3.16, to die for the world. That blood that was shed in that process is what established or bought the church of Christ, Acts 20.28. So we see that He started with a shovel. Well... The potter then moves on to a mallet. A mallet. The mallet is used to remove the air bubbles. He gets the clay out. He's not finally going to start using this clay. And, and he needs to make sure that the air bubbles from this cleansed clay are worked out. Again, can you imagine an air bubble forming a pocket, making a weak spot? Can't cook in it. It won't hold hot things. It won't hold cold things. It eventually breaks at that point and makes the item useless. So we might see that, this working of the mallet, as trials and tribulations and temptations in this life. We have to be worked. We have to be worked. And that leads to us behaving in a certain way. Notice what James said. James 1, beginning of verse 2. He said, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Okay, we need to understand exactly what he's talking about. Are we to enjoy the trials and the tribulations? That's not the the pleasure we are to receive from that. What we are to receive from that is the pleasure of knowing that through the trial and the temptation... We focus on God and we remain faithful. And that process, every time we overcome, the next one becomes easier, right? But every time we give in, the next time it becomes easier to give in. Zechariah prophesied this, Zechariah 13, beginning with verse 9, And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. We understand precious metals being tried and being refined and being uh, brought up to a certain temperature, just like gold would be, and then the parts that are within that gold ore that are not supposed to be there are burned up. See, it refines it. That's kind of what this mallet is doing to this clay. It's making sure that the things inside it are not there. Of course, at this time, it's it's the air bubbles that cause a problem. And that's why Peter made this statement, 1 Peter 1, 7. He said, The trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Christ. So we see that, the uh, the potter uses a shovel, he uses the mallet, but he has to have a wheel, doesn't he? In fact, Jeremiah said he saw the potter working with the wheels. At least two, in fact, that's what there were. There were always two wheels. There was a large bottom wheel, usually made of uh, stone, and uh, within that uh, shaft on which it sat, there was a socket and within that socket there was 
uh, about a three-foot rod sticking from it made from wood. On that was a smaller stone. And when you turned the bottom one, the top one turned. And the potter used his feet to turn this stone. And so he would take clay, he would put it on the top one, and as it turned, he would use his hands to mold and to make whatever vessel he was wanting to make. And I think that leads us to probably the most important tool, right? He used his hands. The potter's hands were never out of contact with the clay. As that wheel was turning, if he moved his hand and he no longer was in contact with that clay, it was slung off the wheel. It was thrown into the floor where it would pick up uh, debris and things that shouldn't be in the clay. You know what happens then? Well, it's, it's worthless. It's no good. He has to get the clay back and he has to work all those things out again and then he has to begin to mold it once more. I think this constant contact is a wonderful picture of what the Heavenly Father is to us. He is in constant contact with us. He's not going to leave us, right? The writer of Hebrews promised God would never leave thee nor forsake thee, Hebrews 13.5. And so we have to be in constant contact. So what does that tell us in our everyday lives? We come to services on Sunday morning, Sunday evening. We may even come on Wednesday night. The rest of the time we're out of contact with God unless we strive to remain in contact. The building isn't anything special. Okay, It's a matter of convenience. We're able to meet together, get out of the rain, get out of the cold, get out of the heat. A place that is uh, pretty comfortable to be able to sit for a couple of hours. And that's all it is. We're the church. We, we remain in contact through our behavior and through our faith. And so I think a lot of people in the world, they come in, they, they uh, enter the worship services of the Lord, and when they leave, they kind of leave God behind. Well, God is in our lives if we're Christians, right? So when we look at this constant contact, the clay has to be in constant contact. The potter did all the hard work, right? So we notice the mission. I want us to notice now the method. That's our second point. As the potter works the clay, deforming it into something profitable, we notice in the passage that some things can go wrong. The the clay can be misshapen, right? There can be a problem. Now the problem never lies with the potter. It always lies with the clay. The potter is not going to put something in the clay that shouldn't be there. The potter is not going to intentionally throw the clay off. The potter of Jeremiah 18 is always going to have his hands on the clay, but things can happen. And I think that there are times when even the best of care, the vessel can come out misshapen. It's not God's fault, is it? We're the vessel. We're supposed to maintain our shape. And I believe... Most Christians have faced times in their lives when they became a little misshapen. I think often we're going along, we're growing in grace and knowledge, and we think we're doing well, and maybe for a period of time we lose concentration. And then a temptation comes along. And for whatever reason, we find ourselves giving into that temptation, and now we're thrown off balance. And with every turn of the wheel, 
Once we are thrown off balance, the blemish becomes greater and greater. Have you ever watched someone uh, turn clay on a wheel? If they do not keep their hands in exactly the right position, if somehow it gets off balance, it'll just collapse. It'll just collapse. And so we have to be very careful. And we must never be guilty of saying, well, that'll never happen to me. We read throughout the Bible about people who thought that. I think there are a lot of people in the world who began well and ended badly, right? Paul spoke of that. He told those in Galatia, he said, you did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? Galatians 5, 7. They began well. They ran well, but then they were hindered. See, they started out with the proper shape, but they didn't maintain their shape. We remember people like uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander, 1 Timothy 1, 19 through 20. Paul gave them over to uh, Satan because they had made a shipwreck of the faith. Of course, Demas is well known for his forsaking God in Paul, 2 Timothy 4.10. So there can be a problem when it comes to the wheel turning the clay. But I want us to notice that when that happens, we can be comforted by God's patience. We can be comforted by God's patience. That's His method, right? That's His method. The potter can take the marred vessel. He can do something with the clay. He can put it back on the wheel. And he can begin again. And the clay has an opportunity to be turned into something useful and profitable and beautiful to bring honor and glory to the potter. The problem is when it gets to the point where the clay can no longer be molded. That's the problem, and that happens. There can come a time when that clay has become misshapen, molded, become misshapen, molded, and over time, you know what happens to clay? It just gets to where it can't be molded well. And at that point, you know what the potter has to do? Throw it away. Throw it away. And there comes a time in the lives of Christians where we get to the point that our hearts have become so hardened that we cannot repent. That doesn't mean that God will not forgive someone who repents. What it means is we get to the point where we have involved ourselves in sin so long it has just become a part of us and we choose not to repent. And that is exactly why John warned this, 1 John five sixteen. He said, If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not unto death. Now, what's he talking about? A sin and then a, a sin not unto death and a sin unto death. A sin that is not unto death is a sin that someone recognizes. They say, I want to change my life. I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn back to God. And then we pray for one another. We pray for ourselves and God said He'll forgive us if we repent and confess our faults to Him. There is a sin unto death where John says, you can't pray for that person. That's the person who lives in sin and says, I'm not repenting. I'm not going to repent. We can't ask God to forgive someone who won't repent, who decides to live in sin, and so that's the difference. And that's exactly why the wise man warned this. 
Proverbs 4.23. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. We better maintain our hearts, because they can become hardened. The same sun that dries the clay melts the wax. And so we need to make sure that we're like those we read about in Acts 2.38. They were pricked in their hearts and they asked Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what should we do? They wanted to understand how to be saved. We don't want to be like those who, listening to Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 8, they were cut to the heart and they fell upon him and they stoned him to death. It's the same message, almost identical. But it treated those hearts different or those hearts treated it different. As we've looked into Jeremiah's illustration of the potter and the clay, we see the mission, we see the method, but I think we need to make some application. What really is the message? That's our third and final point. I think verse 6 tells us that the potter is in control. The potter is in control. It is in his hand. All things are, right? And if the clay is good, he makes whatever he chooses to make. But the clay has to be good, right? God is in control of the world. And a person can sit around feeling sorry for himself, saying, everybody's against me, nobody wants to help me, nobody loves me, or he can say, God's not against me, God's people aren't against me, God loves me, God wants to help me, and the faithful do too. God's in control. If we feel sorry for ourselves and allow our hearts to be hard, then we can't come back to God. I don't think it's true with anyone. Any one individual, there may have been a few through history, maybe Hitler or someone like that, that the whole world is against a single individual. I've never known a person personally who that was about. There have been a few probably. But in general, that's not true. And so we need to be careful about our attitudes. We need to stand up and stop believing that lie, right? We need to believe what God wants us to believe. In other words, we need to be good clay. We need to be good clay in the hands of the potter so he can use us to his glory. Secondly, as far as the mission is concerned, we have to be in compliance to the potter. Do you know that the clay has one job? There's only one thing expected of the clay, and that is to yield to the potter. The clay doesn't have to do anything else. The clay doesn't transform itself. The potter transforms the clay. All the clay has to do is yield to the hands of the potter. We can't save ourselves, can we? We cannot save ourselves. We can't come up with a plan of salvation, but God did. God came up with the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God came up with the gospel plan of salvation that begins with faith, believing in Jesus, that He is who He said He was, John 8, 24. God came up with the demand and has always required it, that we repent of our past sins. That we say, hey, I want to live for God now. I don't want to live for the world. Acts 3, 19. God came up with the the demand that we confess before other people and live this way, that we believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. We see it in Romans 10, 9 and 10. 
In Acts chapter 8, verse 37, we see the Ethiopian eunuch saying, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And you know what he did then? He went down into the water, both, he, both Philip and the eunuch, and Philip baptized him. And when he came up out of that water, we read about him rejoicing and going on his way. That's the last we hear about the eunuch. But isn't that a wonderful statement? And we understand going into the water and being baptized puts us into the body of Christ. Puts us into Christ, Galatians 3, 26 and 27. Romans 6, 3 and 4 says we, we rise up out of that water to walk in a new life. Being a new per- being good clay, right? And then we live faithfully. We need to keep that in mind. The only responsibility of the clay is to yield. That's all we have to do. I think a whole lot of people in this world are kind of like the man whose car broke down and the, the tow driver came to get him and he rode in his car all the way back to the shop and they got there and the driver told him, he said, I didn't think I was going to make it up that big hill. He said, boy, I didn't either. That's why I pushed the brake the whole way so we wouldn't fall back. Look, we can't go forward holding the brake, right? We have to transform ourselves. We have to move ahead. We have to allow God to transform us. He did all the work. He did all the hard work. All we have to do is yield to His commandments. I think we have to be careful as we fly around the wheel of life. The Christian is in God's hand. We need to choose to remain there. John 10. We need to choose to stay in His hand because no one can make us leave it. We have to choose to stay there though. And we have to examine ourselves. Second Corinthians 13, 5. I, I think that there are some people in the world, and I've been in this category at times, who believe they're dedicated. And when they begin to examine themselves, they see pretty quickly they're not as dedicated as they thought they were. And that's our job. All the clay has to do is to yield. If you've been thrown off the wheel... You want to come back to God, whether in initial obedience to the to the plan of salvation that we just spoke of, faith, repentance, confession, uh, immersion in water, and faithful living, or whether you've done that and you need to be remolded. Come to God in repentance and confession. Ask Him to forgive you. You may have to do it publicly if it's of a public nature. If not, it's a private sin. Go to God on your own and tell Him about it. He knows about it already. Tell Him you're sorry for it. Confess that fault and strive to not be misshapen again. If you need to answer this invitation, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.